phonemic awareness, what we know, what we don't know, and how much. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back end production. This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and I am very glad to have you with us for this episode. If it's your first time and you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive this content. That will help others find the show. If this isn't your first episode, you've been around a while, we'd appreciate if you share this episode with a friend or colleague that you feel may benefit. And just a reminder, the entire back catalog of Teaching Literacy Podcast is now available on YouTube. Just one more avenue to check out the show. Just search Teaching Literacy Podcast on YouTube. If you want to follow me, I tweet from time to time on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, so you can find me there at Jake D. Downs. But let's get to today's episode. The last several years, phonemic awareness has been a hot topic. There's been lots of debate, and some folks have been questioning what phonemic awareness practices matter most, how to teach it best, and even how much phonemic awareness skill a student needs. I have two researchers today who have investigated these questions and more, and they have a wealth of information to share with us. Their names are Dr. Florina Urbelli and Dr. Marianne Rice. Dr. Urbelli is an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Psychology, at Texas A&M University, and Dr. Marianne Rice was her PhD student at Texas A&M and just recently finished up her dissertation there. Today we are discussing two recent meta-analyses that these authors published on phonemic awareness. The first meta-analysis is entitled Phonemic Awareness, a Meta-Analysis for Planning Effective Instruction, and was published in 2022 in Reading Research Quarterly. The second meta-analysis is entitled A Meta-Analysis on the Optimal Cumulative Dosage, of Early Phonemic Awareness Instruction, and that was published in January 2024 in Scientific Studies of Reading. We cover a ton of ground this episode. There is lots to unpack. I know that you're going to enjoy it. I know it will help clarify for you some of the conversation that's been happening around phonemic awareness. And after the episode, make sure to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. <laughs> Dr. Florina Urbelli and Dr. Marianne Rice, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm really excited to have both of you on the podcast because we're talking about a pair of meta-analyses that you both recently completed with a lot of not only takeaways, I think, for the research field as a whole, but I just found these absolutely ripe with instructional implications as well. Uh, but before we dig into the podcast, I want to learn a little bit more about each of you. Can you each provide an overview of your background and how you became interested in phonemic awareness instruction? And maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Urbelli, first. All right. Thank you. I wanted to give a shout out to Dr. Rice first. We are a strong duo, so I appreciate you inviting us both to this podcast because I think the idea of presenting both analyses is uh, excellent because they are really connected to each other. So I'm Florina Arbelli, currently an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Educational Psychology at Texas A&M University. Uh, and before I started here, I was actually a teacher. I come from Europe, and so I was a teacher uh, teaching English and German classes. And so in, in, in 
in those classes, what I noticed was that um, some pupils, some uh, students had uh, reading difficulties in their uh, additional language. So when learning English and German, however, they, they didn't have any reading difficulties when they were using and reading in their native language. So that's how I started digging into what could have contributed to, to those difficulties. So my dissertation was around learning an additional language and reading in an additional language such as uh, uh, English and how that plays out in, in those children. And then after uh, I got my PhD, I, uh, I came to Florida. I'm biased here, but it's one of the best centers in the world on reading. So I came to the Florida Center for Reading Research, where I was a postdoctoral researcher for two years. Those of you who know the center know that there are excellent opportunities uh, in terms of manpower, but also resources. So learned a ton from everyone there and uh, did some research on genetic and environmental influences on reading uh, before I took on this position. So basically to answer your question, I was really uh, interested in all sorts of reading, right? But then uh, Dr. Rice joined my lab during the pandemic. And that's when she started asking these questions about phonemic awareness. So I'm thankful actually to Mary Ann for starting asking these questions. And um, that's how we started working together. I'm Mary Ann Rice. I just completed my um, PhD at Texas A&M University in educational psychology with a focus on special education, where my advisor was Dr. Urbelli. And so I come at this from a long history of being a classroom teacher in the early grades. So I taught for 10 years in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, and as a reading specialist in elementary schools. So I've always had an interest in these early literacy skills like phonemic awareness, and particularly in my work with students in my reading specialist role who were having reading difficulties. Um, you know, a lot of them had difficulties with phonology and phonemic awareness, and so that was always an interest for me. And then, um, you know, after a move from my family to College Station, I started teaching at a local community college um, with college students who are still having reading difficulties and really saw that this skill was missing for a lot of them. And they were having struggles still with reading and spelling because of some of these difficulties. And so, you know, that's where my interest comes from. And, and I can talk more about how this question came up when we get to the meta-analysis, but that's a little bit of background on me. Fantastic. Uh, welcome to you both. And and I can see how those paths interweave. And I, you know, I think back to 2020, I was about three quarters of the way through with with my doc program. And based on popular conversations that I was hearing, practitioner conversations I was hearing, that's when I started to have a lot of questions too around phonemic awareness. And well, what does the research really, really say? So I was really excited to see the first meta-analysis come out in, in 2022, and then we got a bonus one a couple weeks ago. Before we start to really dig into the studies in particular, I want to talk more broadly about meta-analysis. Researchers use different tools to answer different types of questions. And for many study designs, it's not that one is perhaps better than another. It's that it's going to yield different types of information. And so let's talk a bit about meta-analysis. What types of conclusions can meta-analysis provide? And then what are the limitations of meta-analysis? So I could talk a little bit more about this. Meta-analysis are really, it's a really powerful tool 
to accumulate the knowledge in the research field and then to summarize that knowledge in the research field. Uh, and basically what it does, it, it tries to identify the overall, and typically that's a weighted average of a treatment effect. That's what we did in the RISE et al. Uh, meta-analysis, for example. And uh, if you look at Cochrane's guide, which is the society that uh, deals with meta-analysis, they talk about um, the advantages and some of them, for example, include um, how uh, meta-analysis can uh, provide an improvement in precision. With meta-analysis, we are able to answer questions uh, that are not posed by individual studies. And also with meta-analysis, sometimes they're an, an excellent opportunity uh, to settle some of the controversies that are arising um, from conflicting claims. The other thing about meta-analysis, the other cool thing about it uh, is that we can actually measure, you know, the extent to which there is variation across studies, which means are the differences more expressed in one versus the other way. And so when we talk about moderator analysis in those points. But just as with any design, you know, there, these results can be misleading, uh, particularly if we don't um, account for specific study designs, if we don't account for within studies biases, if there, are a, if there is a lot of variation across studies, and also reporting biases, all those things need to be considered. So basically what sometimes you will hear in our circles is garbage in whatever, you know, studies that go into the meta-analysis are perhaps not well uh, executed, then you, you'll get a garbage out. So a meta-analysis that perhaps is not as informative. What I've seen happen in meta-analysis uh, that I've conducted in my lab is that sometimes the variation across studies that I, were I was talking about cannot be considered just because the reviews do not have enough studies to allow for. But overall, it's a powerful tool, again, to summarize the knowledge. Um, we report what we call prediction intervals just to represent what that knowledge, what the variation around that knowledge might be by using different uh, like precision intervals that I mentioned, sensitivity analysis and things like that. So looking at meta-analysis, I tend to think of it as like a very forest level view. Like I'm flying in an airplane over a <laughs> mountain good, and yeah. I can see the whole forest all at once. But I might not be able to see perhaps the specific species of different trees or specific aspects of the landscape, which is what more of a well-designed single study can, can do. But it's, it's extremely helpful in identifying broad trends or, or broad aspects of the literature, you know, writ large. But to your point, it's really important to understand that that garbage in, garbage out principle of if if a meta-analysis doesn't have a reliable set of studies to begin with, then that's going to influence, you know, the degree of of confidence of whatever findings the meta-analysis has. So exactly. I, I appreciate that framing and just thinking about meta-analysis broadly before we get into talking about phonemic awareness more specifically. Uh, to transition there from a theoretical standpoint. How might we frame phonemic awareness and thinking about why it's important in a student's early literacy development? You know, uh, there, there are a number of theories, uh, right, that talk about phonemic awareness and its role for word reading. Um, perhaps um, 
One that we discuss in uh, Marianne's meta-analysis is uh, Aries stage uh, theory. And then the other uh, that we discuss in, in the Urbana et al. paper, uh, we talk about the prophetic uh, verbal efficiency theory, but also discuss the Aries stage um, theory frame. But the short answer to your question is that students need a phonemic awareness skill for automatic word reading or to use prophetic language uh, like Phonemic awareness plays a pivotal role in helping children establish word-specific orthographic representations. So now I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what does that mean, word-specific orthographic representations, right? And by the way, you know, phonemic awareness and to teach that, that's uh, cheap, right? It's, it, it requires few materials and it is fun. So um, it really should be done in schools and just sit around with kids and, and play games and uh, use powerful tools such as encoding boxes and magnetic letters, uh, whiteboards and things like that. So to go back to the uh, specific, word specific orthographic representation. So we need to remember that the goal of everything is to, is word reading or reading, right? So for the children to be able to read words automatically, they have to have like, um, some, something that Eric calls high-quality word units that are established in memory. So when these units um, are fully automatic, she refers to them as sight words, whereas Perfetti talks about high-quality word units as representations, um, also in the memory, that are fully specified and redundant um, in the ortho orthographic lexicon. So to be able for the children to get there, to get those words to be fully automatic, um, children need to bond uh, a word that uh, Profeti uses. Eric talks about amalgamation. So they need to bond these identities of words. And those identities of words include, you know, word spellings, words pronunciations, words meanings. And then for them to be able to do that, they require certain skills and phonemic awareness is just one of those skills. So they, they need to have phonemic awareness, of, for example, segmentation and blending. They need to have the knowledge of letters. Uh, they need to know about the graphene phoneme relations, uh, orthographic method. And once the word representation, you know, is in their, in the child's lexicon, in, in their memory, Decoding really doesn't play a role anymore, right? Decoding links are of little use. Now, this is where Perfetti and Ari are a little bit or differentiate themselves in terms of uh, theory. Whether a word is fully specified uh, and redundant by Perfetti, right? This is a word by word process. So we don't know exactly to what word this is going to happen and to what word it, it won't. Uh, that is why we, we say, you know, in, in uh, the readers, uh, when you talk about reading uh, theories, that Perfetti is an item guy. So an item level scholar, whereas Ari is a stage level scholar, uh, scholar meaning, um, and both are important, right? Uh, to have stages like Ari is talking about is important because that we, we know how far to teach, you know, that is what to teach in a certain class. Um, so. Uh, if you have a kid at a certain stage, you cannot say much, though, about the item, about the word itself, you know, because the item could be there with with one kid, but not with the other kid. So just like stages are important in terms of instruction, perhaps item levels are important, too, 
because there are words that um, kids will easily learn. Um, and research has shown like high frequency words, shorter words, plus interest, right? Those will be easier for them to learn. But there are uh, other number of variables within the word that tell us whether a word is going to be learned or not. So as you can see, you know, both of these are informative. Then for the kids, you know, to further practice these skills, um, they need to read the words in meaningful texts. So uh, to kind of summarize, right, like going back again to a very simple answer, phonemic awareness is needed for word level reading and then later, of course, reading comprehension. And so that notion of phonemic awareness being not a skill in and of itself in its own silo, but phonemic awareness being acquired for the sake of helping children leverage the alphabetic system and learn to read efficiently is, mm -hmm. is really critically important. And understanding through that lens, I think, is an important aspect in and of itself of thinking about, you know, instructional mm -hmm. implication. Let's talk about meta-analyses on phonemic awareness. So perhaps the, the most well-known is the one con completed mm -hmm. by the National Reading Panel back in 2000. Then you also had the National Early Literacy Panel a few years later that followed up with that. Why was another meta-analysis needed? Uh, and not only one meta-analysis, but two <laughs> meta-analyses needed. What do these add to the literature of what we didn't already know? I'll start this one and then I'll let um, Florina add on to it. So this, the first one really started with a question that was brought to me when I first started the PhD program. It's the pandemic. I had a kindergarten son mm -hmm. at the time who was doing Zoom school. And his teacher and I knew each other. And so she actually asked me, she was like, I'm struggling. There's yeah. teaching phonemic awareness over Zoom yeah. is not working for me, right? How can these kids, how can I hear if they're able to do these blending and segmenting tasks? What would be better? Should I have them play one of these games I've found or should I send home activities for parents to do? And in reality, I think she was asking me feasibility, like as a parent, which one would I prefer? But that got me thinking, if I'm going to make a recommendation, I should also consider what the evidence would say about which one might be most effective. So I went and looked at the National Reading Panel report, and they really couldn't answer that question for me because there had been no yeah. studies of parents conducting phonemic awareness instruction with their kids at the time. And there'd only been a few computer studies. Yeah. And remember, these are pre-2000 computer studies, which is very different than computers in 2020 when this was going on. So that really started this question of me saying, well, Maybe we should look at this again and really look at it from a very pragmatic perspective of <laughs> what is happening in classrooms. Like what is feasible for teachers to implement with phonemic awareness instruction? What do we know about how it's effective and see if there had been any changes when we're looking at it from this perspective and with yeah. 20 new years of research? And then I'll let Dr. Rebelli add a little bit about the second one. Yeah, you answered this eloquently. That's okay. where everything started. And then for the dosage question, one of the things that we looked at in, uh, in the Rice et al. study was duration, whether the effect um, varies by duration. Uh, but we, uh, we didn't consider dosage uh, that you keep uh, seeing and the question that arising, you know, how do we continue with, uh, with phonemic awareness instruction? Do we do it until mastery? You know, where, where do we stop? Where do we start? Not as, an, as a fun answer as Mary asked for the first one, right? But it's still a question. That, um... And I think these provide just such a nice pairing of meta-analyses because I think the first question a teacher is always going to ask is, you know, well, what do I teach and how do I teach it? That, right. That's always going to be number one. And then the second question, the follow-up question is always going to be, how 
much? How much do my students need? How frequent? And those are questions that, especially the dose, you know, typically studies don't have a really thorough reporting of dose. So for us, you know, how we conceptualize yeah. this in our paper, right? We, we talk uh, about dosage and we define it in a paper. Dose would be the number of minutes per, per session. And then those frequency, you know, the number of instruction sessions per week by duration, you know, the total number of mm -hmm. weeks the instruction is implemented. So that's in the Erbelli et al. paper. Whereas in the yes. Rice et al. paper, right, we, we only looked at duration. We only looked at the number of uh, uh, weeks of instruction and how that varied. We didn't look at dosage. Yeah, and that being an important dis distinguishing of the total number of weeks versus the the total number of minutes per instructional session. Um, so let's jump into the first meta-analysis. And uh, Dr. Rice, you mentioned this of a key aspect of being pragmatism of what can be done by teachers, what can be done by parents, what can be done by software, what do we know from studies on those? And uh, when, when a researcher is conducting a meta-analysis, there is an inclusion criteria. So the, the researchers make a decision or these are the requirements to be included in our study, and these are the anything that doesn't meet that is going to be excluded from our study. So can you speak a little bit to how the the first meta-analysis was designed in such a way to try and achieve that pragmatism of, of what can be done by teachers and parents? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of our criteria, of course, had to do with the instructor because that was a big question from, you know, the start. And it, it also led to that pragmatism piece, right? So every study had to be, this instruction would be provided by a teacher who was regularly in the school or a parent or um, some, we did include community tutors. So that might be other parents who came and tutored kids at school or a family member who was doing it at home with the kid and then computer programs that would be able to be implemented in schools or at home. And the reason we... Put that was again this pragmat this is these are all resources that schools and teachers would have access to and so what that excluded was researcher delivered instruction so with doing that we then wanted to look of course at some of the same moderators so some of those same types of instructional characteristics that the national reading panel looked at and a few new ones that we can talk about as we keep going but because some of this might change based on the exclusion of all of the researcher delivered instruction and really, that really gets it. Researcher-delivered instruction is not the way that the majority of our children in the U.S. or in any country get their instruction, right? And so really thinking about it needs to be instruction that could be provided in a way that kids and schools could implement. I think that's a strong design aspect. Obviously, studies implemented by researchers and where the intervention is delivered by researchers can tell you one thing, you know, but ones that are entirely the instruction delivered by teachers, an employee at the school or parents, you know, is able to tell you something different of what's more perhaps feasible or or realistic to uh, to expect. Another aspect is that you only included randomized control trial groups or quasi experimental design groups. So every study had to have a control group to compare against a business as usual or, or control type uh, condition, which helps um, measure like the true effect of the instruction and not just, well, maturation of the students just on their sort of normal instructional progression path. What, what's the added benefit of the, uh, of the intervention? So 
Uh, for maybe for a second, let's talk about the moderators or the variables that you investigated in the study. Yeah, so there were several. We kind of grouped them in some categories. So I think, like you had mentioned, teachers always want to know, what am I teaching and how am I teaching it? And another question is, who am I teaching this to? So we looked at several participant characteristics as we turned them. So this would be the grade level of the students that, um, or age of the students and the risk status of the students, which was the term we lived with. Were these students who, and with younger students that we were looking at, this was, you know, preschool through first grade, were they um, termed at risk by the authors of the study or were they low risk students? So the authors did not identify these as particularly at risk students. And then um, we also looked at the um, English language learner status of the students. So whether English language learners were included in the study or were they specifically excluded from the study. And then we looked at several instructional characteristics. So again, how is that instruction provided? So we looked at group size, we looked at um, what PA skills were included in the instruction. We looked at whether letters or um, were included in the instruction or whether it was oral only or uh, no letters included. And then oh, we looked at duration, of course. How long did the instruction go on for? Perfect. So let's start maybe unpacking some of these variables. The, the first one I want to talk about is, is group size. So you looked at whole class interventions, you looked at one-on-one -on -one interventions, and then you also looked at small group or any time that the group was, a whole group was divided into smaller groups that wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. What did your, what, what were the outcomes based on these, on whole group, small group, or one-on-one -on -one interventions? Yeah, so this one, we did not find what we would call a statistically significant difference. So this means that although the, we get this number, this effect size um, might look a little bit different, we can't say that it's statistically significantly different, meaning that there's always error in measurement and all of these types of things. So they they overlapped enough that we weren't confident in saying, well, this one way is better than either of these other ways. So they we would say that for what we have, they're all pretty effective ways to provide the instruction, the phonemic awareness instruction. And so that was a little bit different from what the National Reading Panel had found, which they had found that small group instruction was the most effective way to deliver phonemic awareness instruction. And there could be a couple of reasons why we found that. So one could be that we had a lot more one-on-one -on -one studies. When you think about the way parents and computers deliver instruction, that is typically done one-on-one. -on -one. So there's just more studies in that, making it a more reliable finding. The other that actually I've been thinking about after a recent conference and some things was that um, when I think about excluding researcher-delivered instruction, most of the time researchers are probably delivering this phonemic awareness instruction in a small group pulled out from the class, whereas teachers are more likely to deliver whole class instruction. And so we might have seen that change there with excluding that researcher delivered instruction that sometimes has typically higher effects and that, especially with our young kids, um, they were talking about a read aloud intervention, but teachers sometimes get better results from whole class instruction than they do from small group when you're delivering it in a real live classroom, because in small group instruction, the kids can be distracted by all the other things going around. The teacher's distracted with behavior management and other things. Whereas when they're focused on whole class instruction, they might actually be really good at whole class instruction. And that's just not something that you see with research or delivered instruction as much. So those are just some thoughts about it. But the good news is that they're all three pretty effective. And so I think teachers can mix and match between those with what works for them in different settings. Yeah, I think that speaks to the pragmatism of it is that you can do it whole group, you can do it small group, one-on-one, -on -one, 
works as well. I think that's a really important finding that it can be done effectively basically in whatever format you have available to you, which maybe perhaps speaks to more the content of it being what makes the difference and not necessarily the design format. Um, so then let's shift and we can talk about that. So when you grouped the tasks of the instruction being delivered, you, you grouped it into three different groups. So one was identification, isolation, and categorization. So what's the first sound in this word or which word has a different sound or grouping by a single sound across multiple different words. And then you did another one, which is blending and or segmenting. And then another group that you looked at was deleting and substitution. How did outcomes vary based on those different groups of tasks? Yeah, so this one, the, the National Reading Panel had looked at this in terms of a number of skills that were taught, and they had found that one to two number being the sweet spot. So that kind of helped guide this. And although that one category has three, they're very similar. Identification, isolation, categorization, as you described them beautifully, they're really talking about like picking out one sound and kind of saying, are these two words, do they share a sound? What is this one sound? Which word doesn't have that sound in it? They're sort of what we might term a little bit earlier phonemic awareness skills, sort of building blocks. And then we know blending and segmenting are really key skills because of what we're trying to do, which is get kids to read and spell. And then there's been a lot, which I think we'll talk more about sort of around these more advanced phonemic awareness skills, which I know there's some, whether we want to use that term or not, whether that's the best, but sort of getting to that higher level of being able to delete a sound. So what's here without the sound is ear or add a sound to something. And so what we found was that although we couldn't say they were statistically significantly different, we did see that it was a little bit higher for that blending and segmenting. So in effect size terms, more of a large size, 0.8 versus smaller to moderate in the 0.3.4 range for the others. And so what that would tell me is for now, again, like we've said before, more research will be done. We'll probably figure out more about these specific skills and for which students and at which time point. There's lots of those things. But blending and segmenting, same as the National Reading Panel found, really tend to be those key skills to focus on. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the way that you laid that out in the paper. Well, not statistically significant, but the difference between a, a 0.8 effect size, essentially, and a 0.5 effect size, I mean, that's three-tenths of a standard deviation. That's That's something to consider when designing instruction. Another hot area of conversation right now is using letters, using it with you doing phonemic winners with no letters, some combination of the two. What did you find in this area of the use of letters versus the, the use of no letters? Yeah. So again, this one was similar to what the National Ring Panel found, which, and one thing to note is um, one difference between ours is we, we're only looking at phonemic awareness outcomes. So students were only tested at the end. We only looked at whether their phonemic awareness got better on assessments of phonemic awareness. And so we did not find a statistically significant difference between instruction that provide, that used letters and that, that did not, which was what the National Reading Panel found. However, the key piece here for me is that the National Reading Panel also looked at reading and spelling outcomes, so sort of those next steps with kids, and found that instruction that used letters was more effective for reading and spelling outcomes, right? And we remember reading and spelling is our goal. Phonemic awareness isn't the end goal. It's the building block to those goals. And so that would tell me that phonemic awareness instruction with letters might be a great way to make sure that we're getting kids to that reading and spelling point 
And the reason we see that difference between the phonemic awareness outcomes in reading and spelling likely has to do with how the assessment is given, right? <laughs> phonemic awareness, when it's tested, is typically tested oral only. And that's because we're trying to see, can they do this sound piece separate from letter knowledge? And then when we we also test letter knowledge, and then when we're testing them together, we're testing reading, right? To be able to decode a word, to read a word. And so it would be expected, perhaps, that if you're doing oral only or with letter instruction, you might not see a difference on the oral only piece of the assessment, but you might see it once you're asking them to combine more of those skills because you're also teaching letter knowledge and the, the piece of that, how do you put those two together to read a word when you've included letters. So we'll talk more about this, I think, in the next one, but we really think you know using letters is perhaps a, a bigger bang for your buck when you're talking about getting to the, the piece that's important, which is reading I love how Marianne pointed out, you know, different outcomes, phonemic awareness outcomes, which we looked at versus word reading and spelling. Uh, and it's funny because in 1983, actually, Bradley and Bryant uh, published a study in Nature. So researchers will know that this uh, high impact journal um, showing back in 1983 uh, that uh, sound uh, categorization when they were doing training on that, was more effective when they included also explicit connection with, with the alphabet. So the debate goes, you know, to the 80s, um, and we still have these questions, which was very interesting. interesting. Yeah, I, the way I look at this too, and I think you framed it really nice, Dr. Rice, that in this meta-analysis, you were only looking at outcomes that measured phonemic awareness. And so, you know, asking myself as a teacher, well, is my goal to improve my students in their phonemic awareness or is my goal to, you know, on a phonemic awareness test or is my goal to improve them on a decoding and spelling type assessment? And the goal is actually, I, I think it's both, right? That it's improving phonemic awareness in service of being able to help the decoding and encoding be a more efficient process cognitively. And so, you know, while in this meta-analysis, you know, does the use of alphabet improve phonemic awareness only? You know, well, that was, you know, that, that, that the evidence didn't support that, but that doesn't mean that it's not in service of supporting, you know, written print, which is, you know, on a, on a trajectory. I mean, that's what we want our students to be uh, progressing toward. And, and that's a logical notion, and I, I appreciate that framing of it. So let's talk grade level for a minute. I, now, first, did you have a specific cutoff of what grades you wanted to look at? And then what was the distribution of studies among grades? And, and what did you find? Uh, were there any differences based on student grade level? Yeah, great question. So for this meta-analysis, we focused only on preschool, kindergarten, and first grade. So we know from the research that those are the grade levels where you typically see phonemic awareness instruction being provided to students as a whole. Again, that pragmatic piece, these are the grade levels where you see that teachers are asking about this, this type of instruction. And in looking at the National Reading Panel report, who had included more grade levels, once you got past first grade, you got into that second grade, almost all of those studies were focused on students with reading disabilities, which is, okay. is a great question. And maybe in a future meta-analysis can has, and I think there is one that's kind of looked more at students with reading disabilities, but we were really looking at students as a whole. So we focused on those early grade levels. And so we looked at grade level in terms of preschool, so prior to kindergarten, um, kindergarten or first grade. 
And as you might expect, most of the studies we found were in that preschool and kindergarten with still some at first grade, but, but fewer at that point. We did not find statistically significant differences here. This is a trend throughout this um, meta-analysis for the effectiveness of the instruction across those grade levels, which again was a little different from what the National Reading Panel had found, where they had suggested um, their study showed that the earlier was better. Preschool was more effective than kindergarten. Kindergarten was more effective than first grade. And so, you know, that's I know for the preschool one, they had very few studies, and so it was nice to see in ours about 30% of our studies, so a little bit you know, more preschool studies had been done. And so I think our finding might um, suggest that just more studies might make us a little bit more reliable in terms of where that is. But I think the key piece for me is that preschool and kindergarten is, is definitely where we should be doing it, probably still a little bit in first grade, but we'll talk a little bit about assessing students and seeing where they are and whether it's still needed at that point. But I think all of those grade levels, you can be pretty confident that some phonemic awareness instruction is going to be effective. So the, the answer to that one, I think, is yes. Does it work in preschool? Yes. Phonemic awareness instruction works in preschool. Does it work in kindergarten? Yes. Does it work in first grade? Yep. Yes. Um, so let's talk about then, you also looked at uh, low-risk students versus at-risk students, and then English language learner students, and then students who were not English language learners. Uh, can you unpack those outcomes for us? Yeah. So similar to the other ones, there were, again, no significant differences for this. And I'll highlight a couple of things. So for risk status, um, one thing that was important is we we followed the same criteria that the National Reading Panel used, which was did the authors identify their students as at risk or or did they not? And so they were then low risk. However, what authors use to determine risk can be yeah. pretty broad. And you're always at, at, in a meta-analysis limited by what the, the authors do, what information they give you. And so not all of these were students who necessarily had low phonemic awareness skills. So I think that's important to remember. Some of these were students who might be at risk just for um, low socioeconomic status. So, for example, a Head Start program was where the study was done. And so the, the students were termed at risk because of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean they had low phonemic awareness skills. And so that's something to keep in mind. A couple of studies that really looked specifically, um, there was a Hatcher one that we talk about in there that compared at-risk to low-risk students in a population and really based it on that phonemic awareness bound that the instruction was really effective for those at-risk kids. So I think it brings us back to assessing students and knowing where your students' phonemic awareness skills are is really important in planning the instruction for your students and how much instruction that they might need and using your data to guide your instruction. Again, for ELL, we're limited by what the authors provide. So the only way we could really group it was to think, did they have English language learner students included or did they not? There was only one study that had a full sample of English language learner students. It was actually conducted in Israel. Um, so all the students were learning English as a second language. And Phonemic awareness instruction was effective in that study, so we would think it's pretty effective for English language learners. But very few of the other studies had large samples, so it, it could vary how many students had English language learner status, and they didn't often report those separate, those effects separate. So we can't say for the English language learners, we saw this effect of the PA instruction. They're included in sort of the overall effect, which can perhaps mask some of the differences that may or may not be there. So I think that's definitely an area that we need some more research in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
you know, I mean, you can look at that as, you know, if, if a lot of studies will report, well, uh, this is the percentage of students that were English language learners or were at-risk learners, but then they don't res report disaggregated results of like, here's the reports for the group of students that were at-risk versus outcomes for the students who are not at-risk. And so you just got the mercy of what's already, of already written and trying to sort of disaggregate that. I think overall, this meta-analysis really speaks to the utility of phonemic awareness instruction and then also how malleable or adaptable that you know, that it is, that it can work in multiple different grades. It can work with multiple different delivery, you know, grouping formats. It can work with multiple different instructors. And we'll get more into implications of that further down the road, but I'm just curious, did these findings, did you expect the, to have this consistent of findings across areas or um, how did this contrast with what you thought you might be getting on the other end? Yeah, I I really thought we would find some more differences based on the National Reading Panel report. And so because they had found several things that were statistically significantly different. So I was a little surprised that we didn't find any. And, you know, but I think you're right. I think that just shows that phonemic awareness instruction is effective in a variety of ways, that it's pretty simple and easy to implement. And so perhaps we don't need to be as focused on all of the little pieces. Let's do it. Let's Let's, you know, get it in there for our kids, get that practice in the fun activities, quick, easy. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be as complicated as we might have, have thought it was at some point. Just to add, you know, if you think about it a little bit more broadly in terms of, you know, there are not hundreds of ways to learn to read, right? When it comes to reading, all children have roughly the same brain uh, and there are same kinds of constraints constraints on on the brain right and there's the same learning sequence so um just echoing what what marian said already yeah that's a huge point i'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that makes a lot of sense to me uh so let's let's shift to the second meta-analysis so the first one was published in 2022 this more recent one was just published uh towards the end of january 2024 which you know two years might seem like a long time in the practitioner world but I tend to think of research years like dog years. Two years apart yeah. is pretty, that's that's pretty fast. That's like a week in research time. Um, yeah. So the second one is investigating instructional dose. And the the some of the perspectives around dose is actually borrowed from the uh, pharmacology field of research. So what can we learn? What can pharmacology help teach us about reading instruction and the dose of reading instruction? Right. So, yeah, in this one, we measured dosage of PA instruction. So dosage in terms of hours where we took into account the, the dose, dose frequency, and then duration. So we talk a little bit about pharmacology in our paper, which you think, you know, all right, this is a reading, reading uh, journal, right? And these uh, guys um, discuss pharmacology. But if you think about it, when you go to see a doctor, um, they will ask you, do you want this uh, medicine in a form of a liquid or a pill, right? That would be kind of like a form. And then um, how often you're going to take that medicine and then uh, for how long uh, and how many milligrams, say. So this, each of these parameters, just like in, uh, in, the, in, in the world of medicine, right, gives you information of how to take that pill. And so in the same way, we could think about PA instruction as, an, as a pill, right, if you will, or as a medicine. 
uh, for a certain treatment, which, which would be learning via instruction and eventually learning to read and spell. Just like with the variations that you see in uh, how often you're going to take that medicine, are you going to take it for one week or two weeks? In the same way, uh, way we could think about uh, PA instruction. How long are we going to administer it? Are we going to administer it uh, every day? How many minutes? So that's where the uh, analogy comes from. And I think dose is something really important to consider. And it's something that I feel is getting more attention in research the last few years. And, and perhaps part of that is just because we have a lot of research where dose can really be looked at in more nuanced ways than it, than it could be in the past. but I think of a good example of this is in episode 20, I talked with Tim Shanahan about the NRP report, and he talked mm-hmm. about how the, the research on comprehension strategies were, you know, we're talking like three, four, five, six week interventions. And then that got like scaled mm-hmm. into like 10 years worth of curriculum. And so that mm-hmm. being, you know, perhaps a misapplication of, of dose of, you know, these aspects we're talking about, if we're thinking about literacy as a developmental progression, they don't need to be forever, for always, and all time. It's how much is needed to get students to the next level of, of what that progression uh, looks like. And so you mentioned dose, and specifically you're talking about optimal dose in this meta-analysis. Can you, can you define that term optimal dose for us? Yes. So what we refer to in the paper as the optimal dosage is, so we, it's a little bit complicated complicated, but if, if you look at it, it totally makes sense. So when you look, we, we have like two groups, right? We have a treatment group on one side and then uh, the, the comparison group or the control group on the other side. And then let's imagine, right, that the, the uh, treatment group uh, is, is administered this PA instruction. So they get this instruction uh, whereas the control group does not get it or gets another type of instruction, whatever that may be. As the PA group gets more and more of uh, that instruction, the differences between the treatment group and the control group uh, will get larger. And at some point, that difference, right, in gains uh, in, in one group versus the other group will be the largest. And that point where the differences in gains between the two groups are the largest, this is where we, uh, what we call the optimal dosage. So in, in terms of when you pretest the kids, right, and how, how much gain they make till the post-test in one group versus the other, where the difference between the two is the largest, that's what we call the optimal dosage. So maybe to, I'll try and describe the, like the graphic mm-hmm. that you're using throughout this, but uh, you can think of it as an XY axis going back to like your algebra days. And so on the X axis on the bottom, you have cumulative dosage, which is the number of total hours of the intervention. And then on on the Y axis, you have the effect size or the degree of growth that the treatment group exhibited in comparison to the control group. And so you get these in this one, it's it's nonlinear. So you have these curves. So you can have a a concave curve, which I, I wrote these terms on. So I can't, I've been trying to think of a mnemonic for concave and convex for weeks now, and I can't. So it's on a sticky note on my desk. Yeah. Concave <laughs> is a frowny shape. So where less dosage had a relatively perhaps lower effect size. And then over time, that increases to a point where um, 
effect size is at its highest, and then over time it starts to have diminishing returns and then and then decrease again. So you, you can kind of think of the ones actually in your paper are more like an upside down Nike symbol almost, where it starts out pretty high, escalates up, and then starts to diminish on the other side. And then the inverse of that is would be like a convex shape, which is more of a smiley face where it starts high, you know, dips down and then picks up again. And, and um, most of these don't follow a convex shape. It's more of this concave of, you know, growth, growth, growth relative to dose and then starting to experience diminishing returns. Um, so specifically, let's talk about that garbage in, garbage out principle. What studies did you include in this meta-analysis as part of your way that you were going to, to frame the study overall? Right. So we basically included, you know, uh, talking about the Rise at All study, we took those studies, uh, right, looking at uh, phonemic awareness outcomes and wanted to see what this optimal uh, dosage might be. The problem was that a lot of these studies that were included uh, initially did not report uh, on the dosage uh, variable, meaning either we missed the duration uh, or uh, the dose frequency was missing or the dose was missing. So we were not able to calculate the dosage. Um, sometimes, you know, they would, but rarely, we've only found 16 studies, right? They would report um, the whole number, so the, the cumulative dosage in hours or minutes. We were able to include those studies. However, if they reported something like in terms of dose frequency daily for 12 weeks, we don't know what that daily means. Daily can mean anything, right? From five minutes to 24 hours. So whatever, whichever study used the term daily was excluded. And then the other uh, thing that we struggled with was when studies reported a range, right? A range from 20, uh, 15 to 20 minutes that can, again, be anything. And we were not, you know, with these approximations, we were not able to calculate uh, the exact dosage. So if you look at the Rise at All study versus the Herbelli at All study, you'll see, you know, how we lost, like, Marianne, please remind me, but I think almost 50% of studies just because they were lacking the, the reporting of dosage. Yeah, Marianne. Yeah, it was more than that. We had 46 in the original one and only 16 in in the second one. So we lost about two-thirds. Mm -hmm. Is this the exact same corpus of studies, just more constrained based on which ones actually reported dose then? That's correct. Yes. Yes. Which ones reported dosage or which one reported all the three characteristics like dose, dose frequency, and duration. So we were able to calculate dosage. Uh, and when we, you know, Jake, when we started, you know, discussing this podcast and I wrote an email and said, hey, this would be a great opportunity to encourage all researchers, including myself, to actually, you know, document um, and report dosage as is. And uh, I remember Marianne Lonigan et al. study uh, was one of the uh, great studies in terms of reporting. And uh, I think they mentioned uh, how many minutes was uh, the dosage uh, that was implemented, that that intervention was implemented versus, you know, how many minutes they thought that, is, uh, that intervention was going to be implemented. And when you look at those two numbers, Maria, maybe you remember them. I don't remember them, but 
Yeah, there was a vast like difference between what they thought, you know, the intervention was going to take versus what it actually did. Yes, most of the, a lot of the computer studies had really specific data, as you might expect, because the computer mm -hmm. can track that. But you saw that what, what the recommendation that, you know, it was supposed to be the kids were supposed to play it for 15 minutes per day for this. They were able to pull what it actually was, and it was much less. Yeah. So that's. That's an issue when we're thinking about what's the actual dosage that kids got. Yeah, I, I, dosage is it's tricky. To, it's easy to report. It might be more trickier to report it accurately. But I would yeah. I would echo that plea of researchers being really accurate with the way they report their dosage. Um, so let's talk about the cumulative dose. What did you find was the optimal cumulative dose for PA instruction? The introduction, you know, to this question was uh, perfect because you mentioned. What does this actually mean, right? What kind of studies were included? What kind of studies were excluded? So we, uh, based on the model, we found out that 10.2 hours of PA uh, instruction, that, that was the optimum dosage. Now, when we look at the uh, studies that were actually included, all of those studies reported small group or one-on-one uh, -on -one PA instruction, and most of them, were conducted with students who are at risk for reading disabilities. So we need to have these characteristics in mind, the studies characteristics in mind when we interpret our findings. So we assume that this optimal estimate of 10.2 hours indicates an additional 10.2 hours uh, of instruction, you know, on top of whole group PA instruction based on the studies characteristics. Like the other thing that I wanted to mention here is that those, that uh, 10.2 hours, right? It's not as simple as a prescribed end time. What our study says is that this is just a, an optimal time based on the studies that we analyzed. Um, but when, say, in five years, 10 years, 15 years, when we get more studies, this number might shift. Um, and so I would not be surprised if it shifted. Uh, but based on the information or the data that we have currently, this is what, what we found. The next thing that we also talk about in the paper uh, and where I've seen a lot of debate, you know, on Twitter, for example, is, okay, can we now conclude that that 10.2 hours is just a perfect amount of time to teach PA instruction for each individual child, right? We say this is a group level meta-analysis, based on statistical um, analysis that we conducted, we cannot say anything about uh, individual child or individual classroom. We give some recommendations in the paper in terms of, you know, teachers should be looking at the children they have in front of them, the students in front of them, get, uh, gather data for the students in front of them, and then make instructional decisions based on the students they had in front of them. What we know, not from, only from this study, but from the Rice et al. study and many other studies, is that uh, PA instruction works, right? It, it is effective. Um, and how it should be reg regulated in terms of how much, you know, a particular child or a particular class needs, that's really uh, based on and to determine by the teacher with the students in front of them. Right. So a, a, a wrong takeaway of this study would be saying, <laughs> therefore, 
10.2 hours is what every school in my district or every classroom in my school is going to deliver for phonemic awareness and instruction, that it's not a necessarily a prescriptive dose, but would it be accurate to frame it as perhaps a starting place of thinking about, you know, total volume or or how would you, how does that 10.2 hours translate into if I'm a teacher, if I'm a kindergarten teacher planning phonemic awareness instruction, what does that mean for my group? Yeah, exactly. So you can frame it as as a starting point. um, And actually the the results align very well with the National Reading Panel report. The number itself is very close to what they found where um, instruction was the most effective uh, in in that range. Um, So if you you calculate this, um, you know, based on the number of weeks and the number of minutes um, that uh, teachers are typically administering PA instruction, then you'd probably find found out that uh, find out that by the end of uh, say uh, the winter semester uh, you'd probably want to move on, you know, and not administer only PA instruction, but also start with uh, phonics and so on. Yeah, yeah. So in the sense that you would never say, you know, if well, if you if a student is still struggling with phonemic awareness and you have a good reliable assessment measure that's indicating that that student still needs support in that, you wouldn't be like, well, they've had their 10.2 hours, therefore I'm going to move on to something else that, you know, these these studies are reporting across broad, remember like forest level patterns, but individual students are still going to have wide variance in the degree of dosage it's going to take for that student to adequately respond. Yes. Yeah. And I'll I'll just add just a little bit, you know, think about it. It's one of the findings that for me is that there is a diminishing return, right? So there's mm-hmm. PA, as we mentioned, PA instruction does not need to go on forever. And then if we're replacing other types of decoding, encoding instruction with especially, you know, PA oral type activities at some point for some students, that's not going to be a very good bang for our buck and a good use of our instruction. Yeah. Well, yeah. Next Thank you point. for chipping in with that. Yeah, that's an excellent point of if we're pushing in one thing for instruction, something else is being pushed out the other side. And and also thinking about the grades that you're looking at here, you mentioned that like second and third grade, it sounds like to me a lot of the, the research that's been conducted in that area is with students who are dyslexic, students who are at risk, not mm-hmm. necessarily in whole group tier one type mm-hmm. situations. That's yeah. exactly right. Yes. So uh, you also looked at optimal dose with... Um, instruction with that that was using letters and instruction that wasn't using letters. Um, I'm curious uh, to let's unpack some of the findings around optimal dose with with using letters and then what it means, uh, what it means for instruction. Yeah. So what we observe in terms of using letters in addition to uh, PA instruction is that the curve progress beyond the, the 16 hour mark, whereas be- until the 16 hour mark, we saw the curve dropping, which suggests that um, incorporating letters to PA instruction and then uh, PA instruction into alphabetic instruction would be considered something uh, which would be practically uh, meaningful after the 16 hours. Now, uh, we give uh, two pieces of explanation. One is once the students uh, kind of show progress in uh, orthographic uh, phonologic uh, mapping, 
they can uh, include letters and that appears to accelerate this process of acquiring PA skills. The other thing, you, uh, you know, to be mindful of is we see that curve ending at 24 hours. This was just the last, uh, this was a study that reported 24 hours of administering PA instruction with letters, but we don't know what's happening beyond that, right? It's just because we don't have data. Uh, and it is possible, again, we don't know because we don't have the data, but at some point, you know, the curve could be rising, rising, and then again, reaching a, an optimum maximum. And then we'd see, again, diminishing return after, after that point. My hypothesis, you know, based on all the reading theories and the, uh, just the experience, that probably will happen eventually, right? Because students will move on and won't need PA instruction anymore, letter knowledge instruction, and will start reading. So we, our hypothesis is that that might happen. But again, the data that we have available um, showed us this pattern. Yeah, when I was reading this, it, it felt like I was like reading a murder mystery where you had you know, most of the charts you were displaying were this concave form where it starts lower and then accelerates higher based on time and then diminishing returns. And then this one's like the inverse of that. And, you know, I probably gasped, like, you know, where it started high and then it drops down over time. But then, you know, at around what was that, 16 hours, you know, it starts to pick up again. And I think it's important to remember that these are measurements of phonemic awareness. It might look different if we were doing you know, measurements of, of print, yeah. it's interesting where perhaps the phonemic awareness development lags a little bit, but then as capacity develops within the student that it begins to accelerate again, uh, but being limited with that sort of 24-hour being the study with the highest uh, dose overall. Dr. Rice, was there anything you wanted to comment on that aspect of the study in particular? I think just reminding, you know, like we do have evidence from other studies that phonemic awareness and reading and spelling are sort of reciprocal as we like to describe them. So that means that you you have a little bit of PA and then you you build some some capacity for reading and spelling and you start to read and spell and then you get better at PA from reading and spelling, which is what we think that curve is also showing. Yes. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. With both of you, what were you the overall main takeaways from each of you with this second study around dosage of phonemic awareness? One important takeaway really is, you know, we should undoubtedly uh, engage in phonemic awareness instruction. We are not saying in this paper that this is, uh, that phonemic awareness instruction is not important or effective. However, what our study shows is that an overemphasis on P, uh, PA in, uh, instruction might not be as effective. The other thing that uh, Marianne mentioned before with the reciprocal relations between phonemic awareness, and then reading. There's been a ton of research by great researchers, uh, Dr. Ari, Perfetti, and Bex, probably uh, the citation from them, phonemic, aware, uh, phonemic knowledge and learn, learning to read are reciprocal. That's an uh, often cited example. But also Barbara Foreman, Rick Wagner, Maggie Snowling, Charles Hugh, all of um, these researchers have written about it. Um, so... Uh, the instruction, right, is not intended only to, to master phonemic awareness skills, but also to uh, facilitate um, children's reading um, acquisition. And then um, 
the last thing is, um, again, to remember that the 10.2 hours is not some magic number. It only tells us that 10.2 hours was best for early clinic awareness teaching to get the biggest effect, right? But the way, you know, the teaching was done, for example, the letters, that amount might change. The amount also changed when we looked at other moderators, uh, but not vastly. So it's just important to plan the best amount of teaching phonemic awareness instruction um, and to be mindful that uh, eventually, probably uh, the majority of kids will, will pick up that and uh, that it is fine, you know, to continue other types of instruction such as one. Yeah, I, I think Georgia really covered the the main takeaways when it comes to PA. I'll just add broader. I think it opens up questions and maybe some ideas for both practitioners or researchers to really start to think about this optimal dose. How much do we need to teach these things? And to keep in mind that although, you know, we, we aren't saying that more instruction might hurt a child in any way, they're not getting worse, but we're replacing some other type of instruction. Like you mentioned, when we are continuing some of these um, pieces of instruction that maybe don't need to go on as long. And so I think just continuing to look at that and think about how can we, as researchers, help practitioners really think about what is the best amount of instruction broadly, as well as help them with assessments and guiding those more specific decisions for individual students. Yeah. And the other thing um, that, as uh, Marianne put this very eloquently, uh, it reminded me of, you know, being mindful of that the way kids learn to read, you know, it's not like this sequence, you know, they don't start with, um, you know, phonemic awareness and then you, you stop and then uh, moving on to phonics. These are all intertwined. So for good literacy instruction in early grades, it's important to focus on decoding, which includes, you know, phonemic awareness and phonics, and then on oral reading fluency, and on reading and listening comprehension, including vocabulary, and on writing, including spelling. So, and all of these, you know, should not be one at a time, but all of them together, you know, in every kindergarten and first grade and second grade classrooms. Of course, if a kid is lagging in PA, give him or her uh, a good, put them in a good phonics program and they will learn that it's really time for them. But don't forget about all of those other aspects and literacy components that, that also need to be taught. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. Perhaps maybe can I share a thought too, and you both can tell me from your much more informed opinion whether it's correct or incorrect. Absolutely. Uh, you know, something I think a lot about is the, the, the coin of the realm in the researcher world is effect size, or, you know, which is really just a degree of measurement of growth, how much growth happened in a group. But typically in the practitioner world, the coin of the realm there is proficiency. You know, what percentage of my students are at a, a threshold that is considered proficient based on whatever metric is being administered. And so if I'm thinking with us as a teacher, you know, I might have the most growth in my students in that first 10 and a third hour, that first 10.2 hours. But that doesn't mean that my group has achieved a level of proficiency needed in phonemic awareness. And so I might choose to continue to do that, but I might have to acknowledge that the growth is going to come 
more slowly after that 10.2 hours. So I need to be more strategic about how I'm incorporating in print with it and how just being much more strategic with how that time is spent, knowing that the gains are going to be less in order to help a group of students, a small group of students or an individual student get to the level of proficiency that that whatever assessment I'm using that the 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 technical data indicates would be proficient. I think you're right. When we're talking about these effect sizes, we're talking about the difference between two groups. And that doesn't necessarily mean that on the types of CBF measures that teachers would be using to measure instead of student, that all of the students in that group, we're looking at a mean or an average, have reached proficiency. So absolutely, again, that, that takeaway that Dr. Bailey mentioned, you need to think about the students in front of you. Are they proficient at phonemic awareness? Would they still benefit for some more practice and instruction and blending and segmenting? But how can I incorporate that in a way that is to the benefit of reading and spelling? So in incorporating some more focus on that for my students that need it in ways that would benefit the, the outcomes that I'm interested in for my students. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's spend a few minutes just unpacking implications for practice. So synthesizing across these two meta-analyses broadly, and we'll kind of just say, okay, what can we say with high confidence? What can we say with medium or we're pretty sure confidence? And then perhaps we can even address, you know, what questions are still left to be answered in the phonemic awareness research. So, you know, starting off with high confidence, based on these two meta-analyses, what practices can you recommend to teachers with high confidence? Yeah, I'll start. So if I'm talking to a pre-K, K-1 teacher, right, the teachers that we looked at in this study, the, the classrooms, or a parent of a student in those grade levels, I think it's certainly appropriate to think about instructional time and how you can build in some phonemic awareness practice and instruction with your students, focusing on, um, you know, isolating a little bit as a beginning to segmenting, but blending and segmenting for sure, incorporating letters as much as possible. Um, and, and as soon as it's appropriate for your students, and then I would say, you know, when it comes to phonemic course, my, my thing is to keep in mind that end goal, right? So students are trying, we're trying to get them to read and spell. And so keep that focus in mind. And remember that the phoneme level is really the level that we need students to get to in order to read and spell. So focus your instruction at the phoneme level. What can we say with medium confidence based off of these meta-analyses? Yeah, I'll, I'll tread lightly here with, I know some of the debate. So I think because of the research that we've seen, you know, I, I want to tread lightly with time spent on oral-only PA. And so I think if you're doing oral-only activities with kids at a transition time, you know, you're in the hallway, you're waiting, and you're playing some of those oral-only games with them, that's fun and great for the kids, and it's going to be beneficial. If you're doing it, like, as kids come into the room and they're doing blending and segmenting oral-only tasks with you, that's great. But I think use that sparingly and it and in those times rather than spending a ton of instructional time just doing oral only phonemic awareness drills that's what i would say and then based off these data what questions do you feel still linger in the research on phonemic awareness and and phonemic awareness instruction i have several i think one of the biggest one that people still want to know even after all this is sort of that deletion and substitution piece how much should we teach it? Does it need to be taught? Does it develop from becoming a reader and a speller? I think I know several of the podcasts you've done have had people on, Jake, that talk about that. And I think we still need a little bit more research to feel confident about that. 
Thank you. Dr. Bailey, is there anything you wanted to add to that of what lingering questions remain in infinitic awareness research and instruction? Um, perhaps not a question, but something, as uh, Marianne again eloquently put that, uh, with regards to the discussion on advanced PA, is that needed or uh, not needed? And we don't have an answer to that question, right? So probably most readers do not need that. But uh, thinking about, you know, will advanced PA uh, cripple a child's literacy? Probably not so much, right? Uh, but then you have, you know, this epistemology, you know, in the United States where, you know, people are or teachers are still implementing balanced literacy and reading recovery. And these are so ingrained still in many U.S. districts that talking sometimes, sometimes, you know, we are forgetting that talking about whether we need advanced PA versus not, the story gets forgotten, right? So whether, you know, we have advanced PA and whether a child will benefit from that or not, you know, it, it's pr probably at this point in time where we still see uh, so much, you know, balanced literacy going on. Uh, it's probably not a, quick, a key question, right? But if you, if you think about, you know, a child and, uh, and them, you know, sitting somewhere and being trained to guess at words based on the first sound, for example, and being trained at uh, guessing the words on, uh, based on the pictures, that to me, right, will cripple a child's literacy and those kinds of um, messages need to go uh, and be spoken about out there. I think that's a wonderful way to frame thinking about that. Well, thank you both very much for uh, joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I have, I have a final question for you of what do you each love about literacy research and the direction that the field is headed right now? I think, you know, all of this debate around PA and the inclusion of practitioners is what I'm really excited about with more of the research um, getting out there into the practitioners. And I think literacy research and some of the science of reading movement and things that are going on are really helping everyone focus on um, what does the science say and implementation of the science in real classrooms. And so that's where I'm really excited about research going is really thinking not just about what it I'm so glad that Marianne, we, we didn't discuss this before, right? Obviously, we, we each thought about this question, uh, but we didn't discuss it before. But I, I can see that our answers are uh, very similar. To me, what I'm very happy about is when I see these discussions on Twitter, where educators are starting more and more to follow the evidence. And so at, at that point, I think we must try and forget about our personal feelings and Whatever person, whatever program, whatever strategies out there, whatever methodologies out there, if there are advancements and uh, scientific evidence uh, shows that a change needs to be implemented, we need to forget about all of those personal feelings. And then the other thing is sometimes you see advocates of one school versus the other school, they can go too far and become so dogmatic about what the science is telling us versus uh, what the science is not telling us, what it, uh, the science uh, warrants 
versus uh, does not warrant. When taking in all of these messages, right, just being mindful of what the, the science really says and does not say. Uh, and uh, I've seen the public, you know, being or starting to be a lot more mindful about that, which makes me uh, extremely happy. Dr. Florina Urbelli and Dr. Marianne Rice, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. A great big thanks to Dr. Urbelli and Dr. Rice for joining us on the show. I always learn so much from learning directly from the researcher who conducted the research, and I'm sure that is your experience as well. My big takeaway in this episode really centers around this idea of prescriptive dose or how much phonemic awareness instruction a student needs. And remember meta-analysis as we're looking at an entire great big huge forest and individual trees, though, may vary widely within that whole entire forest. And what I really appreciate about hearing from Dr. Belly and Dr. Rice is they were able to help us see that 10.2 hours in light of the types of studies that were collected. And so the majority of these studies were, were not tier one type studies. The majority of these, these studies were most likely studies that were in addition to phonemic awareness instruction that was happening in tier one, or perhaps there wasn't any phonemic awareness instruction in tier one. But across the corpus of literature, we don't really know. And we also need to remember that the majority of the participants in this sample were also students who were identified as at risk. So those two aspects together help, I think, really interpret what that optimal dose of 10.2 hours really means. And I liked that Dr. Abelli agreed that that's really thinking about it as a starting point, but that some students may need quite a bit less to get reach a, a predetermined level of proficiency. And other students might need quite a bit more. And as a teacher, that can be really daunting. What do I do with my student who came into kindergarten and clearly is already very much into text and can read and maybe phonemic awareness instruction isn't going to accelerate that further? Maybe it's more text and, and decoding instruction that will. And then versus the student coming into kindergarten that has very little phonological awareness, not to mention phonemic awareness. And these two students can in very likely be in the same classroom. And that's where it's daunting as a teacher is to have that wide array of students in one spot at the same time. That's where the first meta-analysis comes into play. My, my big takeaway with the first meta-analysis is we can afford to actually be really, really flexible in the way we think about our phonemic awareness instruction. We can be very strategic around it because it works when it's administered whole group. It works when it's administered small group. It works when it's administered one-on-one. -on -one. And so that gives us a range of options to choose from and to be flexible with to try and ensure that we are being responsive to our students' needs. And so part of that prescriptive dose, that concept is being borrowed from the field of pharmacology, of like a doctor prescribing a medicine, and maybe you're taking the medicine once a day, or maybe you're taking it twice a day, but that the prescription of the dose is meant to be responsive to the patient's individual needs. And so the way that a doctor is going to do that is the doctor is going to have baseline data, administer a dose in response to that baseline data, and then 
most likely follow up with that data down the road, whether it's immediately after or just at, you know, a next general appointment. And so really the way that we make wise, intentional decisions around phonemic awareness is by having good data to be able to help us make those decisions, a good screener, a good diagnostic, and perhaps one that's not necessarily attached to the particular phonemic awareness curriculum that you are using, but one that is separate from and has technical data available outside of what the curriculum you're providing is. Curriculum does a lot to shape the way we think about instruction. You know, for example, let's just say that there was a core reading curriculum or a supplemental core reading curriculum that had five minutes of phonemic awareness instruction that ranges from kindergarten all the way up through third grade. And, and that's not unheard of. There are curriculum out there that have like a K3 phonemic awareness block. And so even if you just have five minutes of phonemic awareness a day for 160 days of instruction for four years up through third grade, uh, that ends up being 53.3 hours of phonemic awareness instruction over the course of those four years. Does a group of students need that? Well, you know, that's, that's five times the amount of dose that was found in this meta-analysis. So that makes me think, eh, it makes me question it a little bit. But the truth of the matter is, well, that should be a database decision that I can't prescribe from here in my office with my microphone to your classroom to say whether that's needed or not. But what I can say is, given what we talked about in the podcast, blending or segmenting is where we're going to find the most bang for our buck, because those mimic the acts of decoding and encoding with text, which is what we're trying to scaffold students toward, but also that you're going to get more bang for your buck if you are making data-informed decisions around the phonemic awareness instruction in your classroom. And so in that sense, the question of, well, is more better, what was mentioned in the episode was, well, no, I mean, more phonemic awareness instruction probably isn't going to hurt a student. It's not going to make them a worse reader if you're providing a higher dose or more extended dose of phonemic awareness instruction um, or getting up into those higher order skills like uh, deletion or substitution. However, it only hurts in the sense that it's pushing out something else. And that's where we just have to be really intentional about the way we spend our time in classrooms and the way that we can make the best use of our time is being responsive to what our students need by making data-informed decisions. That's all I've got for you today. Hey, thanks for spending your time with us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I know there's a lot of other things you could spend your time on. I know there's a lot of other literacy podcasts that you could spend your time on, and you should check some of those out. There's some really great literacy podcasts out there, but I'm grateful that you are here with me at the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and I hope to see you around for future episodes. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better. <laughs>